Father, we come before You this morning to worship You and to hear from You, Lord. And to make this time in our hearts, in our minds, to make this time about You and You alone. We pray, Father, that our focus on You as we gather like this will we'll spill out. That this will be not just something unique once a week, but would spill out into the way we live and the way we walk every single day. We ask, Lord, that Your Word would alter us and change us, that Your Spirit would breathe new life into us. And that as we walk by the Word of Truth and the Spirit of Truth, Lord, that You would change us. We seek to be changed, Lord, not to be comfortable, not to be uh, in a place where we can just relax and settle. Father, we are sojourners here, and we know we are on a journey, and we are looking for a better city, a heavenly one. So Lord Jesus, speak to us this morning, Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In Jesus' name, Amen. Psalm 68. Let God arise. Let His enemies be scattered. And let those who hate Him flee before Him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song for Him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before Him. Well, today marks the beginning of our new fall schedule here at the bridge. And just so you understand what we're doing and how this will look, we will begin the morning out with the Word of God first. And then we'll move into our time of worship of God. And finally, we will commemorate the work of God. So, Word of God, worship of God, and then work of God will be kind of how how this looks. What do you mean the work of God? I mean, we're going to close every Sunday for a while now with uh, a focus on Jesus' supreme sacrifice on the cross. With communion. The work of God that, that brought about, brings about our salvation. Now, I've heard all kinds of things since making this announcement a few weeks back that we were going to shift around and, and do teaching first. I know a lot of parents are going, well, what, but what about when we have the thing with the kids and, and how are we going to make that work? Let me put you at ease by saying, gang, we're a family. And I recognize when we're done with the teaching this morning and the kids are all brought in, there's going to be some upheaval. That's okay. That's all right. Kids will find their parents. Parents will find their kids. We'll enter into worship together like a family does. So don't be uptight. Don't worry about that. As with everything we've ever had to do here, we will roll with it. We're getting good at that. If we meet in a barn, we can certainly handle having kids come in in a little bit. But some might say, as I've heard, you know, big deal. So you're changing the order of worship. So you're changing the service order. Who cares whether teaching comes first or worship or communion or whatever? Little changes like that don't make that big a difference. What if I were to ask you all today to get up, don't do it, but this is a what if, to get up and move to a different seat 11 feet away from the seat in which you're sitting right now? Now, if I ask you to do that, some wouldn't because, you know, like Kathy Finnis, you're just going to rebel against anything I have to say. (laughs) Others would say, okay, and everybody would find their spot, get settled 11 feet away, and we go on with the service, and you say, that made no difference whatsoever. It made a difference for Christ Church New England. 
You read about, heard about on September 5th, the 7.2 magnitude earthquake there in Christ Church. It hit that city and tore open a new 11-foot fault line in the earth's surface. 11 feet may sound like very little difference for you and me, but for the people of Christ Church, it was a huge difference in their landscape. The point is, sometimes the most subtle changes in our spiritual lives shake the core of our faith. It's the little things that make the biggest difference. For example, those of you who believe in Jesus Christ, you've accepted Him as Lord and Savior. How big a life change came out of one little sentence, Lord, be my Savior. You just pray. Lord, I I accept You and I want to follow You. Simple, subtle, no big deal, right? Wrong. A huge life change comes out of that one simple thing. Or a simple dip in the waters of baptism. The first time, perhaps, that that you make that life-altering commitment public and suddenly things are different. Subtle changes can make a huge difference. Or for me personally, recognizing the centrality of Christ in the Scriptures completely changed the way I approached the Bible. And it only happened for me, me about ten years ago. I've been a Christian most of my life. But ten years ago, as I was studying the Word, the Lord specifically said, look for me. Look for Jesus, not just in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not just in the New Testament, but in all of the Bible, Genesis through Revelation. Look for Jesus. And you know if you've been at the bridge any amount of time, we do. And we see Him all over the pages of Scripture. Why? Well, because He said in the scroll of the book, it's written of me. It's all about me. It should be about Jesus. But one little acceptance that this book is about Jesus Christ completely altered the landscape of the way I approach God's Word. And the teaching even that we are able to share here at the bridge, subtle changes, seismic impact. I want you all to understand, and let me reiterate what I've already said, starting our mornings off with teaching is not about convicting the latecomer. It is not about trying to compel some kind of new timeliness at the bridge. That is not what this is about. It would have been two, three years ago. Because two or three years ago I had the thought, maybe we should just start with teaching and see who shows up and point them out. You know, as they come in the door, like Galen just did. My man! Don't worry, I'm not going to do that anymore. (laughs) But that's not the intention. That's not what this is about. Again, it would have been a few years ago when I was struggling with, well, how do we get people... You know what? If you... Hear me on this. If you have a rough morning with the kids, if you're struggling just to get out the door, if there's traffic on 20, because we know there's a lot there, if there's some reason that you can't get here on time... Don't turn the car around and go home saying, well, we're late, we might as well not go at all. No, you show up and you walk in 20 minutes late, great. I'll give you a wink and we'll just go right on. That is not what this is about. What is this about? It's not about stirring the pot to keep things fresh and unique and entertaining. That's not it either. Why teach first? So that in this season we might let God arise. That He would have opportunity through His Word to teach us about worship, about loving Him, so that we, for a change, will have opportunity to respond to what He tells us, rather than have them worship Him first and then He tells us you know, what we were worshiping Him for. That's the whole point behind this. Let 
God arise. Few people would question the impact of Jesus Christ on the world. And yet consider it. He chose a tiny country, insignificant in the massive empire of Rome of the day. He walked not only in a tiny country, but not even in the center of that tiny country. He Up north in the Galilee, the region of the Gentiles, wasn't even really in the center of what was going on in Israel. There in Jerusalem. When he was crucified, this massive epic event to you and to me, that day was one of thousands of Jews being crucified all the time. Big deal. Just another Jew on a cross. His resurrection. Who but a handful of women who showed up at the tomb, and then one woman specifically who he said, Mary, and she went, Teacher, and fell at his feet. Who but them even knew what had happened? I mean, an earthquake, the stone rolled away, Jesus resurrected, no one knew. Subtle change, seismic difference. And in that moment there, of his resurrection, and as the apostles are running and trying to figure things out, and he shows up later, this, this subtle change. Jesus begins to meet with after His resurrection for 40 days, the Bible tells us. Meeting with different people, showing up here and there. But still, there are no parades in His honor. There's no great march. There's no massive newscast. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Story at 11. You know, it wasn't there. 40 days go by. Jesus ascends to the heavens. Who saw His ascension? Uh, 11 guys. No one else. He ascends from the Mount of Olives, and yet those in Jerusalem that day, no idea what was going on. A subtle thing happened with a seismic effect. And then ten days after that, the Holy Spirit was poured out on those eleven guys. Other followers of Jesus and three thousand people gave their lives to Christ. And the seismic changes began to happen. And across 2,000 years, no one has had the impact on this earth like Jesus did. And yet, He did it subtly. Quietly. He just came to earth, God in flesh, and was who He was. And it made all the difference in the world. Subtle changes. Seismic impact. What, What was the training ground, by the way? How did they prepare for this massive movement of the church throughout the world? What was it that they did? How did the Lord raise up men and women of such boldness? We actually know how they did it. If you look in the book of Acts, you can read about the example of their massively complex business plan and well-orchestrated strategy. What you read is Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking bread and to prayer. Acts 2.46 tells us, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. It was small groups and corporate worship. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, five things that were going on in the first century church right there. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, and praising God. And that is what spawned the Christianity that spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. Simple. Not a business plan. Not a well-orchestrated strategy. Just a group of people who made a subtle shift from self to Savior. That's what this is about. That has to be what the Bridge Fellowship is about. Making the shift from self to Savior. If it's not about that, I'm done. 
If it's not about us truly pursuing God, crying out, as David writes, let God arise. If that's what we're about, I'm in. If that's not what we're about, let's, let's close the doors and call it, call it good. Let God arise. It's believed that David wrote Psalm 68 as a sort of song of dedication. Now there's another psalm we studied earlier that was a psalm similar to this. At the time that David had the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant brought up from Obed-Edom's house up to Jerusalem to be placed in David's tabernacles. You remember the Ark of the Covenant, right? That acacia wood box that held the Ten Commandments that was overlaid all inside and out with pure gold. On top of it sat the mercy seat, those two cherubim with their wings touching, facing forward. The Ark of the Covenant. And they tried to bring it up. It had uh, an interesting history to it. But it ended up in a place called Kiriath-Jerim, and they tried to bring it up from there one time to Jerusalem. You can read the story in 2 Samuel 6. And it didn't go so well. It didn't go well at all. It ended up with the death of a man who was just trying to steady the ark. You see, they put it on a cart, and they brought it up with the Aerosmith, I think, was there playing. And they brought it up with shouts of praise. It was going to be great. And it began to topple as the ox were pulling it. Uzzah reaches over to stop it and falls dead. David names the place Perez Uzzah. What's that mean? The breaking out against Uzzah. God broke out and took Uzzah out. And so the ark ends up at the house of Obed-Edom. For three months it sat there at Obed's house. I'm sure when they first brought it into Obed-Edom's house, he just went, Oh no! Someone just died and you want to put it in my barn, man? No way! But after three months, Obed-Edom was so blessed that David had to recognize the presence of God is still right here. Obed-Edom becomes Obed-Edom because everything's going right for him and his family. So David says, we've got to do this, but we've got to do it right. And he wrote a psalm, again, that we studied before, that is all about the procession. Every six steps from Obed's house to Jerusalem, ten miles, every six steps they stopped. Worship. Worship God. Every six steps. They sang with their whole hearts. They carried the ark as was biblically mandated on the shoulders of the priests the right way. And it was a a joyful day. Well, the song of dedication, Psalm 68, it's believed was what they sing as, not as they were bringing the ark up, but once they reached Jerusalem... And the ark was taken into the tabernacle and dedicated there on Mount Moriah. That's the background of Psalm 68. What's great, and how we know this, part of how we know this is this very first verse. Let me read it to you again. Let God arise. Let His enemies be scattered. Let those who hate Him flee before Him. David reaches back 500 years to write this psalm. What are you talking about? He speaks words, and I want to give you a few things to jot down if you'd like to. He speaks words of, number one, a valiant confidence. A valiant confidence there in verse 1. This is not the first time these words were spoken. 500 years before, in its entirety, these same words were spoken by Moses. Moses spoke them. Turn in your Bibles back to Numbers chapter 10. Numbers 10. The children of Israel, you may know the old story, were there in Egypt 400 years. And as they resided in Egypt, they went from from a decent setting there in the land of Goshen to a very bad situation. 
a really hard situation where they were under slavery. And they cried out to God, and their cries reached God, and He sent Moses the Deliverer and saved the people. You know the, the old story, and that, so they left there. They journeyed out there into the wilderness, and they came finally to Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai. A lot of things happened in between, but what a lot of people don't realize is the trip from Egypt to Mount Sinai wasn't that long. The bulk of the time in the first two years from their leaving Egypt was at Mount Sinai. 21 months, if you compare Exodus 19 and Numbers 10, 21 months were spent there at Mount Sinai. David's having a hard time. That's okay. He's just tired of Dad's yelling. See, you were gone yesterday. And he had only me all day. That's it. He's just going to do it. Can I just listen to your voice, Mom, please? (laughs) Bye-bye, son. So they're there. What's that? I I think so. I think I'm looking now. We're talking. The whole thing's a shambles. All right. (laughs) Numbers chapter 10 tells us of their leaving Mount Sinai, where they had been for 21 months, Exodus 19, Numbers 10. You can do the comparison there. But finally, they begin to head out and listen to what Moses says. Verse 33, Numbers chapter 10. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place for them, the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. And then it came about when the Ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord! Let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. Psalm 68, verse 1. Numbers, chapter 10, verse 35. Same thing. And when it came to rest, verse 36, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. Moses spoke these words. David quotes these words of a valiant confidence. And I love these words. This, by the way, will be a great way to start and end every single day. Rise up, O Lord! You know, as they begin to set out. And when they reach the encampment, return, O Lord! What if we started each morning and evening that way? Before your head even comes off the pillow, say, let God arise. Go before me today, Lord. Let Let me follow after you. You set the pace. You set the pattern. Let God arise. And then as our heads hit the pillow, we say, let God return. Be with me, Lord. Be with me, Lord. You see, when the ark set out and when it rested, that's what Moses said. And David chooses this phrase, this interesting phrase, to lead out in the procession of the ark. Why? Why did Moses say it? Why did David choose to repeat it? Because the people of Israel knew something about the ark. Perhaps you know it too. That to the people of Israel, the ark represented the presence of God. The presence of God. He said, that's where I'm going to put my glory. It'll rest. I'll meet you there above the wings of the cherubim, between the wings of mercy. The tabernacle itself was called the tent of meeting because God said, that's where I'm going to meet you. That's where I'll tell you about the law. That's where you will receive forgiveness on the Day of Atonement and throughout the many sacrifices and offerings made there before the tabernacle. What's interesting is that the people knew something. That when the ark went out, and as it says in Numbers 10, the ark went first. When the ark went out, the people knew God's presence was going out before them as well. Look at verse 33 one more time. They set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days. 
to seek out a resting place for them. Do you get that? The ark's job was to seek out a resting place, to find the next campground. How can a box do that? Acacia wood box, granted it was overlaid with gold, so it was a shiny thing, but, but how does a box lead someone to where they need to be unless the ark had some kind of built-in GPS? You know, we've got them, don't we? We've got boxes, little boxes, little GPS. And we really think those GPSs help us get where we need to go. Unless, of course, you use Google Maps and find yourself on the opposite side of town where this is where it's said to go. GPS. The ark did have GPS. It did. God's present spirit. God's present spirit. That is the GPS of the ark. It indicated to the people the presence of the spirit of God. Exodus thirty-three fourteen. The Lord said to Moses, My presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. In other words, I'm going to lead out and I'm going to bring you to the place of rest. And Moses said to the Lord, and I love Moses' response, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. If you're going to stay here, I'm going to stay here. If you're going to go there, I'm going to go there. How would it be if that was the way we led our lives? If we said, I am no longer using my GPS, I'm going to use the Lord's GPS, God's present spirit. I'm going to go where God says to go. And if He doesn't want me to go, I'm not going. If He doesn't move out, I'm not moving out. But if He moves out, I am right in step behind Him. You see, I have a hard time believing, and this is just me and some will disagree, but I have a hard time believing God would lead me into the brown lantern in Anacortes. (laughs) I have a hard time believing God would lead me into certain questionable business associations. If I'm using God's present spirit, my GPS, I have a hard time God would lead, believing God would lead me into certain movies, or certain bookstores, or certain areas in this world. If we are following God's present spirit, then we're going where He goes, and where He doesn't go, we don't go. Let God arise, David writes. Let Him go before you, ahead of you, in every decision. And you, you want to have a valiant confidence in the Lord? That's how. Let Him go first. He wants to go first. He wants to lead out in every action. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. The reason we feel failed or forsaken is because we take off without having even consulted the Lord. We head into location where He hasn't said to go. Let God arise. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, some of the best words of all Scripture, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And note this, as you let God arise, as God rises up before you, something else happens. Verse 2, back in Psalm 68, As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. Not only a valiant confidence, but a vanishing contender. A vanishing contender. Enemies of God and His truth, David says, are like smoke and wax. Smoke and wax. What does smoke do? It can make you cough and hack a bit. It temporarily blinds the eyes. You know, it has that stinging and burning impact. And so smoke can close your eyes to clear perception. That's what the enemy likes to do. He deceives the mind. Smoke 
can kind of deceive the mind. It's interesting, smoke looks like a solid mass, doesn't it? Yesterday we celebrated, or not celebrated, commemorated nine years since 9-11. And if you saw any of the old pictures, you remember those billows of smoke rushing down the streets of lower Manhattan. Terrifying. And people running before them as the smoke's overtaking them. And there's something about smoke as it billows, or, or the recent volcano that exploded and you see that smoke billowing and it just looks like this massive, thick, heavy thing. But the truth is, gang, smoke blows away. Smoke is not solid. God has a way of dealing with smoke. And yet, the devil uses smoke and mirrors all the time. 2 Corinthians 4.3 tells us, If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the truth is that the enemies of God and of truth can seem very solid in their position. But in reality, they're puffs of smoke. Paul even refers to Satan in Ephesians 2 verse 2 as the prince of the power of the air. Smoke that gets blown away. I I talked about this a bit. This is an area of sensitivity to me right now. Having a daughter who's just left for college and a son who's leaving for college tomorrow is kind of the one-two punch of my emotions. I'll hold it together. But within in college, I I think about those pontificating professors that we have talked about before, puffing on their big ideas and their philosophies and and engaged in ambiguity. Wednesday night we talked about how academia loves ambiguity. Love to live in the realm of the relative truth, where you think that, but that's okay, because there are all kinds of things that you can believe and think, and whatever you want to think is fine. And my friends, I'm here to tell you, relativity is smoke and mirrors. It is not true. We have absolute truth in the Scriptures. As absolute as as gravity. As absolute as our need to breathe. As absolute as the need for blood to flow through our bodies. So there is absolute truth. And students especially need to know that. In our high schools, our junior highs, our colleges. We're going to talk about the truth project that we're going to begin doing here at the bridge on Monday night starting September 20th. I invite you all to consider that. We'll talk about that more later. But there is truth in this world. And Psalm 146 verse 8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. And when God goes before you, the smoke is driven away. Smoke is blown away. I'll I'll share this. I I don't want to overdo this, but my, my daughter Hannah is at Whitworth University, Christian University, in eastern Washington, and I am thrilled that she's there. And there's some great, great professors on that campus, and their new president, a guy named Beck, he just wants to be called Beck, I think that's cool. Does he play guitar? I don't even know. <laughs> great guy. And we were there kind of for the opening ceremonies and kickoff of stuff last weekend, and, and uh, Cheryl and I had to buzz out a little bit early on Saturday night um, to get back to the hotel, and there were a lot of people, so we wanted to get in the car and get on out of there. But right after we left, they, they closed out the ceremony, the evening there, singing Amazing Grace. And I knew they were going to do that, so you know I'm singing on the way back to the hotel. But Hannah told me after the fact, she said, yeah, a, a guy got up to um, 
you know, to announce that we're going to sing Amazing Grace. He made a big deal about it, said we're going to sing it now, you'll sing it through your college career, and then at graduation we're going to sing it again. Because Amazing Grace, you know what? It is for black and white, rich and poor, male and female, gay, straight, you name it. And Hannah went, huh? And if, and if you're not aware, this Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, the PCUSA, is very much engaged in the whole debate about having homosexual priests or homosexual pastors uh, in the pulpit, preaching and teaching from there. Rick, you have a problem with homosexuality? We're going to talk about that a little bit next Sunday. okay? Um, and I'll explain some of why I've come pretty roughly against it. But I'll explain that next week, so come back next week if you're curious about that. But I, 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 Hannah told me that, and another uh, friend that I was talking to, actually it was James Daly, is Jim here? Oh, did he? Okay, Josh is here. Uh, Jim and I were talking about this because Jim's daughter, Annalise, is also at Whitworth. And Jim was saying, yeah, I said to Rachel, his, his, other, his younger daughter from Annalise, I said to her, maybe you should just go to a secular university because at least there you know where you stand. You know? <laughs> it's black and white, you know the difference in truth and what the lies are. And it's become increasingly, in fact, I was talking to someone else this morning, it has become increasingly difficult, not in the world. We know where the world stands. It is very clear, the relativity versus absolute, very clear there. What's amazing to me is how the church has become a gray area. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, what are we going to do with that? Smoke and mirrors. But when God goes before us, the smoke is driven away. How does God blow away the blinding smoke of the enemy? Well, a couple of ways that we've talked about many times. The sword of truth and the breath of the Spirit. The Word and the Spirit. Revelation 1.16 tells us, Out of His mouth came a a sharp two-edged sword. And again and again we're told, Be in the Word. Make sure you have a grasp of the Word. Rightly handle the Word of truth. And the reason why it's more gray in the church today than ever before, in my opinion, is because people don't rightly handle the Word of truth. We have the Word. Let's use it. Let's be engaged in it. Let's know what God has said about all manner of things. And be clear about that. Because the sword of truth drives the enemy away. It blows away smoke. So does the breath of His Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 Talking about the Antichrist, Paul said, That lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And it's not because Jesus needs a tic tac. The breath of his mouth will blow away the enemy, literally, the spirit. In the Greek, the word pneuma means spirit, it also means breath. Same thing, by the way, in the Hebrew. Ruach, the Hebrew word, means spirit and breath. Because the Spirit of God, the breath of of God, same thing. And the sword and the Spirit blows away every enemy. He becomes nothing more than a vanishing contender as we let God arise. What about wax? When enemy is like smoke, that's easy to see. What about wax? Well, wax in and of itself can be pretty hard and unyielding. You, know, you might say, well, doesn't wax soften? Well, yeah, it does, but who among us would say, hey, I've got this wax candle here. Go ahead and chuck that at my head. Let's see how soft it really is. <laughs> wax hardens and solidifies. Like smoke, it appears solid, so the pervasive evil in the world seems to be pretty solid. 
And in the midst of all this hardening evil in the world, even this congealing ambiguity in the church itself, maybe you found yourself praying words like Isaiah. Isaiah 62, he said, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. Isaiah says, God, come down and do some melting. Send your fire, Lord. Micah says in Micah 1.4 that literally, and I believe this is literal, the mountains will melt under him, the valleys will be split, like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. If you read the book of Revelation, there are several judgments that God pours out on a Christ-rejecting world. You get to the tail end of that, what's called the bowl judgments. There are seven of them. And in the seventh one, we're told that there is an earthquake that is so massive, the islands disappear. So massive that mountains are leveled. So when Micah says the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, everything there will be a massive geographical change to the entire planet before Jesus sets foot here on the planet again. Wickedness will melt away. Evil is driven away before him. What is needed to melt wax? Well, a nice hot light would do it. The light of the world. John 1, 5, 1, 4 and 5 tells us, And Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. That light, the light of Jesus, not only shines, my friends, the light of Jesus Christ is hot and will melt the enemy. Christians especially understand this, that for all the grace of Jesus Christ that He gives in our world and in our lives, He also is a judge. And He also will drive away evil. He pushes back against the darkness. He does not embrace it. Grace doesn't say, whatever's sinful, whatever's ugly, whatever's evil, come here and just be a part of who we are. Grace says, I will overcome the dark. Jesus died so that we could be clean, not so that we could stay in darkness. The light that melts away the evil. Revelation 1.14 and, by the way, 2.18 and 19.12 all tell us that in John's description of Jesus in his glorified resurrected state that he has eyes of fire. Eyes of fire. Which speaks of a readiness to judge. Passionate for his people. Passionate fire for those he loves, but melting away those who have set themselves against him. Smoke and wax, gang. That's the enemy's best that he can do. Smoke and wax. Let God arise. And let the enemy simply melt and blow away. Verse 3. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. A valiant confidence. A vanishing contender. Number 3. A victorious choir. And you are invited to be part of it. You're invited to be part of His choir. And that's us. Listen to this. Not a battalion of fighters. Not a mobilized army of crusaders. But simply a victorious choir rejoicing with gladness. Now I know this sounds weird, but can you imagine on the field of battle, a mighty army comes out prepared to fight and they've got their shields and bucklers and swords and they've got their tanks and they've got their guns and they're ready to go. 
And then the other army comes out, and they're wearing white linen robes, and they begin to sing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. You know, and facing off together, who would win? In God's economy, the victorious choir would win hands down. We talked about on Wednesday night also, First Chronicles 25. It's interesting. David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph, of Haman, and Yejitun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. These were the worship directors in the temple. Asaph, Haman, Yejitun, and their sons. And they were set apart. But what's interesting, and I'd never seen this before, David and the commanders of the army set them apart for this job. What does that mean? It means they were exempt from military service. It means the Levites stayed at the temple. The Levites did not fight. And especially this group of guys were called to be worship leaders 24-7 at the temple. And it was David and his commanders who said, Stay here and praise God. Why? Because worship outweighs warfare. Because praising God, forgive me, pilots, love you guys, respect you immensely, but praise is more potent than prowlers and P3s. You see, the heart of worship cries out, let God arise. And as we are worshiping, let God arise, that's how the enemy is beaten back. That the enemy will flee from if we are simply worshiping the Lord. Well, wait a minute, Ray. Doesn't the Bible tell us somewhere to put on the full armor of God and stand in the day of the devil's schemes? And doesn't it say our struggle is against the spiritual forces of evil and darkness in these dark days? Doesn't it imply that we as believers are to go to war? That's a good question. You're no doubt quoting Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. I appreciate you bringing that up. But here's my response. And this is different even than what I have thought before. Listed there in Ephesians chapter 6 and the call to warfare is the armor of God that is, with the exception of two things, completely defensive. It's defensive, not offensive. There are two offensive implements, the Word of God and prayer. And so if you want to fight, the Word of God becomes your sword. And prayer, your access to the Spirit. Again, the Spirit of truth, the word of truth. This is how we engage the enemy. But, but listen, this is so absolutely crucial, crucial to our spiritual walk. There's a lot of bold talk about spiritual warfare in the church today. No doubt you've read books about it, you've heard about it, fighting back against the devil, taking a stand against the enemy, going head to head with the demonic realm. There's a lot of hubris about how we can take authority over the demonic realm in the church today. But I believe that the key to fighting back against the enemy, be it a particular sin in your own life or the vast spiritual battle raging around us, the key, the means of blowing them away and melting them down is simply this. Don't focus on the devil. Let God arise. Let God arise. We spend so much time, it seems, focusing on the sin. Listen, in your life, maybe you struggle with drugs. And you're sitting here looking at it and going, I don't want to do this anymore. I keep doing this. I just want to stop. I want to stop the sin. Try to overcome it. Man, I'm thinking about it. And have you noticed you continue to do it? The more you focus on the sin, the more the sin seems to take hold. And it's just frustrating and it tears the heart apart. And it's kind of like... 
It's, it's kind of like the game that the Daily started. It just ticks me off. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's this game where you, you basically, if you commit to playing this game for the rest of your life, the way you lose, the, there's no way to win. You cannot win this game. The only way to play it is if you think about the game, you've lost the game. If the thought of the game enters your mind, you've lost. And you have to say, I lost the game. Well, of course, when you say, I lost the game, everyone else who's in the car who knows that game has to say, I lost the game too. I lost the game. Well, I lost the game. Everybody lost the game. And the thing that's infuriating about it is the harder you try not to think about the game, the more you think about the game. Go ahead. Listen, right now. Don't think about the game. No, no, don't. Stop thinking about the game. I lost the game too. Lost the game. We all lost the game. Same thing with sin, my friends. We focus on the sin or we focus on the enemy. We're going to pray down the devil. We're going to pray against the demonic forces. We're going head to head. Listen, whatever we put our, put our focus on is going to hold our attention. Focus on the enemy, you're going to be thinking a lot about the enemy. Focus on the Lord. In fact, the Hebrew writer said, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. You want to battle drug addiction? Fix your eyes on Jesus. You want to battle alcoholism? Fix your eyes on Jesus. You want to battle sexual struggles in your life? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because what happens is, as I look to Jesus, as I consider Jesus, as I worship Him, all this other stuff starts to look ugly. It starts to be revealed for what it is. Why did I want to do that in the first place? Let God arise. We spend so much time and expend so much energy trying to battle in our lives. How about joining the victorious choir and just praising God? Just worship God. Let God arise. Verse 4, sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song for Him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exalt before Him. And I love that word exalt. I've told you before, it means to jump. Jump before the Lord. We don't do that a lot at church. Sit down, man. What are you jumping for? I'm, I'm not jumping, I'm exulting. I'm exalting the Lord I can't help it you know I get a little bouncy when I'm worshiping God hey that's cool that's biblical but note this last thing to write down if you want a valiant confidence before a vanishing contender joining that victorious choir singing praises to his name that's key sing praises to his name his name yeah because his name is his nature His being, His very character. And God, number four, has a vast character. A great and awesome nature. If you read all the way through Psalm 68, and we'll do it on Wednesday night, if you read through it in English, you're going to see God, and you're going to see the Lord. But you're not going to see a whole lot in the way of names, and that's because our translators are are conservative and careful, and they don't want to overstate or, or misstate anything. But if you were to read this Psalm in Hebrew, you would see a different thing. You would see that David uses the name Elohim in verse 1. But down in verse 4, whose name is the Lord, it's Yah. Where we get Hallelujah, praise Yah, praise Yahweh. He uses that name there in verse 4. In verse 11, Adonai, where it says the Lord gives the command, Adonai is the name David uses there. Down in verse 14, the Almighty is literally Shaddai, yet another name for God. Verse 16 is Yahweh, verse 20 is El, and David uses all these names for God. Why? 
Because in the Hebrew, each one of them are distinct and unique and peculiar. No single word is enough to describe the vast character of God. He's bigger than that. And so we praise His name, or we could say sing praises to His names. As we worship God and call out the names of God, it alters us, it changes us, because His character is is being expressed. And His character is more greatly and powerfully expressed in one particular name than in any other. And you know that name, Jesus Christ. Yeshua. John said in John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And in Jesus Christ, we see God. In Jesus, we understand God's character, His love, His justice, His strength. Everything there is to know about God, again, you can see in the person of Jesus Christ. And David even goes there. He even designates this greatest expression of God to man. He points to Jesus. Where does he do that? Look down in verse 18. David writes, You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men. Sound familiar, Bible students? It's Ephesians 4.18. Paul uses that exact same word. He says, you know, when David wrote this back a thousand years ago, he was prophetically speaking about Jesus Christ. Read it again. You have ascended on high. You've led captive your captives and have received gifts among men. What is that talking about? The ascension of Jesus Christ. And talking about the fact that Jesus, in between His death and resurrection, literally went down into Sheol and gathered up the souls of those who died in faith in God before Jesus came. He led captive a host of captives, took them up as He ascended. A marvelous truth about Jesus, a powerful truth. Let God arise, God did arise. He rose from the grave. He rose from the earth. He rises up in our hearts and He is coming back to get His people. Let God arise. Now we're going to go into a time of worship, but before we do, I want to ask you to personalize this. I'm stopping right here for this morning. Because I need to say to you, far too often Scripture remains historical and doesn't become personal. Make this historical song of dedication your personal song of dedication. Dedicate yourself this day, this morning, to say with confidence, let God arise. And let me give you a real simple example. Yesterday, Cheryl's on the women's retreat. A lot of you women were there, and I heard and had a great time. And so I'm, I'm there, you know, super dad. I don't do so well on my own. I I don't want her job. I just don't. Honey, it's yours. I'm giving it back. And I was stressed out. I'm dealing with, you know, I've got the little ones. I've got five kids at home. And a daughter in college is, you know, texting me with the immediate tragedy of the moment. And so I'm, you know, and making the food with the thing and the kids. And I was stressed. Midway through the day, Hayden comes walking up to me with his little Nintendo DS. And he has this thing called Flip Notes. And he says, hey, Dad, I want to show you this new Flip Note. I'm like, Hayden! Not now, dude. Okay? You see what I'm doing? i got stuff burning on the stove. I'm trying to clean dishes. And by the way, the dishes are never clean. Ladies, have you noticed that? You put three dishes in the dishwasher, turn around, there's five more on the counter. Where do they come from? Socks disappear in the laundry. Dishes appear on the sink. I don't get this. 
And so I'm in the midst of all this, just trying to be dad and trying to hold it together. And Hayden, all he wanted to do was show me something he had done. I just I snapped at him. Not now. And I finished the dishes. And I just kind of went, let God arise. Let God arise. I went and sought Hayden out. And I apologized to him. I said, son, I didn't have any business snapping you. I haven't had lunch. I'm a little grumpy. You see what's going on here? But that wasn't the right way to treat you. And I love you, son. Let me see what you wanted to do. And he showed me. And that, by the way, was a shining moment in many, many dark moments of my parenting. So don't think any more highly than that. Let God arise. I'm in the moment of crisis. I'm struggling. Let God arise. I'm face to face with a sin calling me into temptation. Let God arise. I'm battling with my wife, my husband, my friends. I'm having issues at work. Let God arise. As the ark went out to search out a place of rest before the people, let God go before you. Let God arise. Let's arise this morning and worship Him together.